Hey skiers, thanks for tuning in again to another episode of the Global Skiing Podcast. This evening I chatted with a good friend, Paul Lorenz. I always enjoy talking with Paul in regards to skiing as he has very clear ideas and his explanations are spot on and the understanding of all the details in skiing, in my opinion, is some of the best in the industry. So in this catch-up, we talk about a couple of really interesting things. So some of which are related to movements for initiating a turn and what Paul's been playing with this season on a longer radius 30 meter GS ski. Open and closed chain movements of skiing, so listen in to find out about that. How a recent injury helped Paul to improve his training product for his candidates, so that's quite interesting, especially for those of us who are trainers out there or working in some kind of training capacity. And then finally, what the latest projected production videos are about. So I hope you enjoy being a part of a catch-up between two good friends and get something out of this latest episode. Cheers, Tom. Just a general conversation between mates. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, there's Archie Archie going off in the background there. Um, uh, Anyway, I was, you know how um, I did that beer and biomechanics night at the Ginnivine Brewery? And there was one thing you came up to me afterwards and um, were like, oh, yeah, that was really good. Was it? What was it to do with the supination? Um, you asked me about something in the middle of the talk. And yep. I was in the middle of talking with Riley about something, so I wasn't actually listening. And then you said, and then you asked me again in front of everyone, and I said something, and I came up. To, it was about what I thought Marcel Herschel was doing in that photo. That's right. Yeah, I had a freeze-frame photo of Marcel. I said because you just like I just wasn't prepared and I just said what I thought. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, have you? Do you? Did you at all this last season? Um, I don't know if any of the stuff I said is different to what you kind of believe in or um, made you think, you know, in a different way about um, those, you know, joint mechanics in the body and skiing. Um, yeah, did it kind of? Yeah, it did. It made me think about it differently. Well, I guess I, it, um, it firmed up what I was like um, exploring in, you know, the idea of uh, phronation and supination and that maybe you don't actually need as much as everyone thinks about, you know, the arch of the foot and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That it's not. You just solely bounced on the middle of your foot yep. the whole time, except in the edge chain. Um, yep. So I thought about that a little bit more, but I think you know, obviously, we're going to continue to teach parts of foot and pronation because I mean that people—it's a tangible feeling that you can relate to. Yeah. But I also thought when we first started talking about that, you said to me that I should supinate, uh, you know, earlier with the outside legs so that I didn't have the issues and the pain, and mm-hmm. I could then hold more separate. That makes sense, but I can't think of, I can't do it when I'm skiing because I've even tried to ski down and try it. Yep. And the only time I can really have much control over that, my foot and ankle, is really in the transition. And maybe that's just because that's the only time I've really trained it. Yep. Outside of that, I'm trying to keep my legs straight and just be balanced and deal with the huge amount of force. Yeah. So I'm, um, yeah, I found it very difficult to even think about it at that point in the turn. Yeah. Uh, I guess one uh, thing I've uh, maybe come to a realization is that that kind of supination movement with the foot is a little bit uh, passive. Like it's more through 
how you position, you know, your pelvis, your arms, your upper body that feeds down into allowing your foot to be a bit supinated. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 So you're probably you're probably doing it a bit already, I would say. Yeah, if you so as a you know if you're so hard up on trying to balance through the arch and roll your foot through the turn, then that blocks what you just said, your body but putting you in a position that then passively supinates. Yeah. Like pronation causes the knee drive and then yep. rotation. Exactly. Yeah, if you keep taking it, like if you do a little bit, you kind of get what you want at the start of the turn, but you keep doing it, it feeds up into, yeah, everything like rotating that way. You ski with your feet in the transition and you ski with your body through the turn. Yeah, that's a pretty, I would, I would, I would definitely agree with that after this last winter in NZ. Yeah. In NZ. yeah. Because once you're under the lead, no matter what you do with your feet, you've got to be aligned. So that's your feet are kind of irrelevant after that point. Once your center of, your center of mass is in far enough, and obviously four and a half balanced, so that you're it's a balanced force. Yep. So your feet forget about that so much. You know? So this yeah. was this was something I've been I was thinking about just recently. Is um, do you know the difference between an open chain movement and a closed chain movement? No. I'll quickly explain it. So a closed chain movement of the body would be when the furthest part away from the body, so the foot, is fixed on the ground. Yep. And then another part above it is is moving freely. So say the, the, say the pelvis moves forward, the yep. foot's still. That's a closed chain kind of yep. like flexion no, of the ankle. No, and, yeah, and an and opening is, is when the foot's free. And the pelvis is sort of still. With the, oh, okay. Yeah. So, so like if you were, if you if you were in in the air, say you went off a bump in the air and you kind of pulled your feet back under you, that would mm-hmm. be an open chain, like pulling back movement of your feet or extension of your hip. Whereas if your feet are on the ground and, and you and, and your feet can't move, that movement would result in a closed chain extension of the hip. Yeah. So then, just I know there's a question coming. My, uh, what about the situation where neither, neither the upper, like the hip and the, or the feet are closed, both can move? Wouldn't that be an open chain? Uh, that's that's where it becomes a grey area. That's kind of like, yeah, a little. That probably is going to be more on open chain because I guess the real definition of closed chain is it is the the bottom end is completely fixed. Yeah. Coming into this conversation with being totally ignorant and not knowing, I, if you had to ask me and write that out, I would think that a closed chain would be where one end is fixed and an open chain is where neither end is fixed. That would make sense in my head. I know that's wrong, but but that would make sense. The, yes. Yeah. It, it, in if you look it up biomechanics-wise, that like they'll people will talk about an open chain, like typical closed chain exercise. Um, for your pecs would be a push-up, mm-hmm. yeah. Whereas an open chain would be like a dumbbell press, like a yep. bench press kind of thing. Yeah. I don't think that either of those. I mean, I don't know. You've obviously thought about this a lot, but I can't imagine either of those really apply to skiing because you don't have either locked. Um, and you know the, uh, yeah. Well, this is so. This is, this brings brings me to my point. I was thinking because the snow is slippery 
it, yeah, like you're saying, it becomes very hard to make a closed chain fore and aft movement because you kind of move forward and that's why beginners can't walk up a hill with their skis flat and they slide back down. You know, you try and move back and forth and you just slide, your feet move underneath you and you, you kind of go nowhere. Um, so in the fore and aft plane, like open chain movements are really what's happening but in the lateral plane, as soon as you tip it on the edge, because the edge can kind of bite, that becomes more purely closed chain type yep. movements. And rotations kind of a bit just depends on the um, a bit more on the edge grip, really. Because if the edge is gripped, then you can rotate your body against a fixed foot position. Mm-hmm. And then the skis you- kind of flat. Yeah, yeah, it could be, yeah, it could sort of spin a little bit. Um, but yeah, I was just thinking, I was like, that's kind of interesting that that in the different planes, your body would have to move differently because um, most people, when they go to make a fore and aft adjustment, probably try and do it through a, a closed chain type of movement like we're used to walking or whatever or standing, you know, if we're kind of, falling backwards our feet are planted we pull our upper body forwards relative to our feet but in skiing if you did that you kind of don't go anywhere yeah whereas if you're actively really pulling the feet back or moving the the base which is free it sort of would have a more of an instantaneous effect on where your mass is over your feet yeah i think when you do or whatever i've done when this is introduced before after in the level one and training, you know, you're obviously always thinking about the center of mass based the support being the constant, but then I always cover the support being the variable, instead of mass being the constant. And I think somebody that goes from intermediate skier into an advanced or expert, you'll never achieve advanced or expert skiing unless you have the ability to move your feet fore and aft so your center of mass stays in the constant. Um, yep. that's Absolutely necessary, particularly in bumps, particularly in shorts. Yeah. But I think long term, it's a bit of a combination, and that would be the only time where I feel more the center of mass moving. Yeah. Base of support, but the interesting thing on this is that like it's, you're trying to like bend a way of moving on skis into something that maybe have may been defined not on skis. Are you standing on something where there's friction to no movement? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's what. So that's what I was trying to. It, this doesn't help anyone saying this really, but <laughs> if you, the only way you could really prove that something's open or closed is measuring how fast the feet are moving in relation to the set of mass. And if one's constant, the other's not. But regardless of whether one travels faster than the other, the way you, the muscles you use to do a closed chain or open chain would differ on skis anyway. Because you don't have friction. Yeah, but I mean, uh, but I guess you have friction. It's it's a, the degree of friction because snow has friction. It's not completely frictionless. Okay. Yeah, so it's all on a scale of of things, right? So the, there would be an element of it, but it's yeah. just a lot less than the usual environments that people are used to. And I was just just thinking about it, going, well, that kind of makes sense why so many people struggle with fore and aft is because their way of usually adjusting fore and aft is all relative to how we balance mm. on land, which is friction for your feet all the time. 
to, to kind of adjust against. Yeah, when you when you talk about it or when you're teaching it or when you're trying it, um, usually you're doing this stationary on skis, on snow, mm-hmm. and it's actually very hard to do to moving your feet without your center of mass moving. Yeah. Um, you need someone to put their palms on their ground to do it so there's some sort of torque or, or resistance. Yeah. Um, so if you're very good at using the right muscles to stabilize the core, then you can do it. So I find whenever the best result that I have when you're teaching someone to do this is actually doing a shuffling exercise. So one foot back, one foot forward. So there's a, a counterbalance going on. Yep. You need to do that while you're moving across the middle all the way through the turn, shuffling one foot forward, one foot back. And then when you start to, when the brain starts to recognize what muscles you're using to pull a foot forward and back, even though it's offset by the other one, it can then recognize how it can be done with both. And that's sort of a stepping stone into being able to actually move the feet, or that's what I've had the best result. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, the interesting thing I was thinking about too is like open chain type movements require more like contraction, like concentric shortening of the muscles, yep. whereas closed chain movements, it goes into more eccentric. Yeah. Um, you're stopping a force from falling or being... Exactly. You're, yeah. you're basically managing a yeah a mass going out of balance, yeah. whereas the other one you're kind of manipulating, They're yeah, push, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I think it's just kind of interesting that like in the different skills, there would be a slight different kind of way the body would have to learn to move, um, and if people are not very clued in or I guess you know don't have that in their repertoire then that's possibly an area that they would be slower at learning things and find struggle to you know be versatile yeah um yeah did you was there a point you you recognized or you realized playing around with that like like the the shuffle type thing you're talking about really had a big impact on your skiing? Like, do you remember going, oh, wow, yeah, that's actually making my short turns rip or the bumps way better? Uh, I mean, as soon as you start trying to ski bumps, well, it's a, it's a, it's a necessity. So, and it wasn't really a point of saying, oh, it wasn't a point of recognition. I think there's a more clearer point of recognition when in the last few years I've really tried to figure out how to teach this in a successful way. Yep. The only success I've had really with that, um, because you know, like for example, at a high level, we talk about dolphin turns uh, for moguls or for fore and aft or for pressure control, and no one can do it. You know, not a lot of people can do a dolphin turn when you teach them the first time, and it's simply for the fact that they can't move their feet forward and back. Yep. Um, and two years ago, I did a level four pre-course, and I, um, you know, and the other thing is, if you mention dolphin turn to someone, they have a preconceived idea, and then they go and do it, and they don't actually try to do what you tell them. So. I think it was last year or maybe even this last season, I, st- I came straight out for lunch and I said that I just want to do a warm-up and I started in shuffling so there was no preconceived that we're going towards the dolphin yep. and we did shuffle and then you know, then I just tried to get them to shuffle, uh, pushing their feet forward and did it over bumps until they wheelied yep. you know, and I tried to get exaggerate it but they still had no notion of this dolphin you know, and then, and then sort of once we'd already gotten to that point, then we talked about pulling back in the shuffle to get the tips hit the ground first and I managed to get people that I would in the past have thought this is a pointless exercise because they won't get it. I managed to get them, everyone to be able to do a dolphin over a bump 
um, and even some of them to be able to dolphin in a zipper line in that <laughs> afternoon of doing this. That's cool. Which was incredible. Like I've never seen that before ever. So that was definitely something something in that shuffling. So yeah, that was yeah. A, I guess. Uh, yeah, and I guess something in that you didn't. They weren't able to kind of jump to conclusions of oh we're doing dolphin turns. Yeah. What was interesting about sort of three quarters of the way along. When I first talked about putting the tip down, someone said, oh, this is like a dolphin turn. And the second people started talking about it, they, they weren't doing it as well because they were starting yeah. to... Yeah, bring in their ideas of doing dolphin turns. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you're totally right. That's where people become a bit stuck, eh, because they don't have the ability to to kind of be stable with the upper body and freely move the lower the lower body. And like and you pointed out before, like, you know, there's a difference. A lot of people straight away won't actually move their ankle and from their knee, they'll move their whole leg as a big lump to kind of move, to shuffle from, eh? So they're kind of... If you look at people that are less active in life, you know, I mean, of course there are things where you're using an open chain like the dumbbell example you had before. Yeah. Uh, typically, when you talk about balance, people are usually in life that aren't so active balancing on their feet. And so the closed chain is always the case, always. Yeah. Yeah. There's any situation outside. And then if you look at um, relating this to people that are maybe more sporty that aren't necessarily involved in skiing, coming up with analogies that give a similar feel like if you're on a, maybe like a BMX and you're doing a or going along like berms on a BMX, like from yep. side to side, that would give yep. you a similar sort of feeling of the bike riding the berm, but the center of mass staying constant. Yep. You know, that sort of same idea that we're trying to get. Yeah. You know, and you can think about a bunch of different examples, but I guess somebody who's not super active or not super athletic, does that mean there'd be very few ways of anything that they're in life. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the tricky thing about skiing, eh? Because that, that does really differentiate it from a lot of other sports is this, you know, does require this sort of finesse in with, with these kind of movements because of the snow being frictionless, not not completely frictionless, but yeah, yeah. It has less friction than we're used to dealing with. So, um, yeah, anyway, oh, that's good. And um, there's a bit, of a, a bit of a break, like it's a bit like cutting in and out. So hopefully you can, I can hear, you can hear me. Yeah, okay. I can hear. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, it's kind of, yeah, it's not the best quality. That is that your Japanese line, is it? No, we've got awesome internet. Okay. Telstra. Hey, so what did you? I I think I chatted with you a bit when we caught up in Australia, but your focus in Threadbow this year, you ju- you were on your bigger GS, longer straighter fist GS ski a lot. Is that is that what you were working on? Yeah, I spent um, yeah, probably a little more than half of the season on on a twenty on a thirty meter ski. Hmm. Yeah. Liked it? Um yeah, I don't I just wanted to see what would happen, you know, like I don't, we, you know, always get a lot of feedback from people uh, when they see videos and that sort of thing saying that we're always on a slalom ski and we couldn't do it on GS skis and all that and I guess it wasn't, you know, it was more to just be out on it a little bit more and see if some of the things that you do on a slalom ski are 
may be possible. You know, mm-hmm. and, um, this season, one would have been so like the last season in Japan. I stopped. I kind of moved away a little bit on the right terrain. Moved away a little bit from the notion of trying to pure carve and arc everything. Like yeah. I was trying to pure carve parts of the turn, but not all of it. So if, um, in the past, you know, you're thinking about going from one edge straight to the other and slicing straight away. But now I'm thinking about setting a steering angle and then purely carving. Mm-hmm. And steering angle means that you can load the ski sooner into a turn because there's when you do put the ski on the edge immediately, there's far more force straight away to bend the ski and get a rebound. So I found skiing, um, you know, skiing a lot more with a pivot at the top of the turn. Not not excessively. I'm talking from the skis. Let's say they're at three o'clock. Yep. There's a pivot or a swing. You know, Richie Berger talks about it as a swing. You know, yep. whatever. Like the skis are um, crossing under, but as they're crossing under, there's a slight bit of a steering angle Steer- set. Yeah. When they get far enough out of the side, you can land on the edge. And this is even still before the fall line. Um, but then you have immediate ski bend and pressure and rebound. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, look, if this is happening, then on a slalom ski on the steep enough terrain, then, you know, obviously there's still going to be more pressure on a slalom, but there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to get the same or, or you know, pretty impressive rebound on a GS ski if you can get the blend right uh, according to the speed you're going and the, yeah. uh, the hill and, and yeah. how much of a angle you create. And, and sure enough, I think if you, you know, if you get the right speed and you have the right terrain, you can have in a short term that same amount of rebound almost. You know, it's just a different way of getting it. And I'm not saying mm. that it's like a push and made edge set. I'm just saying that you're still taking the idea of a trampoline across the hill. So you're landing on the ski in the fall line and yep. getting off as soon as possible and landing on the ski in the fall line. Yeah. Thinking about the ski turning from nine to three and rolling onto the new edge now. Yeah, yeah. Been discussing this sort of idea because, uh, or I'll start again. It was an interesting skiing with Richie Berger back in March or February, March, and he, without talking about this, has said that a lot of the competitive skis in Japan and high-level demonstrators are shifting uh, a little bit to this sort of focus of uh, having a bit of a. He called it a swing. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of a turn before you land on the edge. Um, this is starting to be something that we're looking at more and more. You know, obviously the the huge emphasis was always on this pure carving idea all the time, always edging, edge to edge, and all the rest of that. Um, you know, but uh, but there are possibly benefits to doing more of what what I'm talking about now. So anyway, back to mm. the question about SDs. Yeah, I found that some of these things were possible with yep. that sort of question. Um, and it was also good. You know, what I did realize is that. Um, you know, the movements are very similar. When you first get on a GS ski, you think, geez, this is radically different to a slalom ski, and it's not. Yeah. But the you need to be going down the hill, uh, um, and the pressures involved are greater. So if you can find the confidence to get that speed and pressure, then really you, you are moving in at the same rate with the same body parts. And I think that's the big thing. You know, like when I first got on, it took me about four or five days to be able to feel comfortable, like my brain processing me traveling at that speed to be able to feel comfortable. And it is really fast. Mm, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was really good. And then um, the difficulty is, you know, particularly in Australia, the runs are not very wide. They're not super long, or, you know. So, when like, it was great. I was on the GS ski when I was training with Jess, the, the athlete that I ski with. Yeah. Because she's skiing at that level and a lot of the exercises are fast and moving and all that. 
But then when I started to go back and do courses, um, there wasn't really the uh, facility to be able to ski at that speed and like that. Mm. So I ended up switching back to the slalom ski to do the courses. And they were a level four courses as well. Like maybe the race and free ski course would have worked with it, but not yep. the teaching so much. Yeah, yep. And do you feel you had some good, like good days where it was really happening and you Oh, yeah. I mean, fit. once you're used to it, I think I had... Uh, yeah, some good days on the GS ski. The most noticeable day was when you go after two weeks of skiing on that GS ski back onto a slalom because it, unless if your speed and uh, and the amount of pressure isn't right, so the speed down the hill isn't right, you have to be so incredibly centered both fore and aft and how much you move in on the GS ski. If that's yeah. not right, you just fall over. Yeah. Obviously, if you're going faster than you need to, then there's enough force to hold you up. Yeah. Right? But so anyway, you kind of have to exact your movement pattern inwards and where you are balanced on the ski when you're moving mm -hmm. in. But then you put a slalom ski on after two weeks, and honestly, I think they were the best slalom turns I've ever made in my life. Like, yeah. It was like you couldn't do no wrong. Yeah. Because you were, you, were, uh, you know, on a slalom ski, you've got this much leeway, you know, and on the GS yeah. ski, you've got this much. Yeah. So when you this Less. much leeway on a slalom ski, it's like perfect. Yeah. Bang on. Yeah. Uh, but it's great. It's funny because you know, within a day of skiing on the slalom ski, you start to get lazy again and go back to, oh, I can just yeah do that. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that, that was really interesting, and um, got some video on the GS skis. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to post any of it. But hey, if if I was to make you think about, so back to this shorter turn where there's a little bit of a swing, yeah, slash pivot at the top of the turn. Um, where do you, how are you making that movement? Where in the body are you getting that pivot to really come from so yeah, that well, when you do hit the edge, you're strong and still in the right position? It's a good question and I'll probably have a, maybe a better answer down the track. <laughs> and, you know, because I've looked at this a lot and I haven't quite put my finger exactly on... Um, Exactly on what it is. What what I would say is for now the feeling, because I can tell you that, and then what's yeah. exactly happening? Maybe I'll tell you that down the track. But yeah, okay. Your yeah, feeling is. If you were to stand, you know, if you were to stand on a trampoline, just a regular trampoline. Yeah. And you wanted to jump. If I said to you, Tom, I want you to jump as quickly as possible, the most amount of jumps you can in a minute. Yeah. You'd sit there with your center of mass not going up and go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just almost sucking your legs yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay. So now, if I said do the same thing, but on a trampoline either side yeah. of you, so you got a trampoline at forty-five or more degrees, two of them. Yeah. And you're doing that side to side. Yeah. It's almost like your feet are not changing direction in the way they're pointing. So when you land on one trampoline, they're pointing straight ahead. Yeah. And then you suck them up underneath you, and then you push them out to the other trampoline. Yeah. Haven't actually changed direction where they're pointing. They're always yeah. pointing straight forward. Yeah. Okay. So the feeling when you're doing a short turn is that you're hitting the fall line, and then once you get the rebound, it's not only pushing you across the hill, but yeah. you're also softening to the point where your legs get uh, light. Yeah. So they're still pointing straight ahead underneath yeah. you, sides looking that way, and then landing on it again that way. So it's not so much the idea of a twist. And yeah, it's not an edge. active. Yeah, it's more, yeah. More the, Maybe the skis don't turn across as much as um, maybe they did when you purely are the turn. Yep. Yep. But when I go and look at the video, 
when I'm doing this that, and I feel like I'm successful. That's uh, the feeling is obviously different to what's actually happening. The skis still seem to be turning across the hill as much as they always do. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and then there is a definite um, and what looks like maybe a heel push, which makes sense from a short position as the legs are going away. Yeah. But I guess that um, I get here's here's something to think about. Maybe mm -hmm, sorry, mm -hmm. I'm going off on a tangent here. No, 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 no. I've yeah. My um, brain's ticking as well as you're talking about that heel, that heel push makes sense though to me. So that's one step. But, now I'm going, to, I'm going to contradict that. Okay. Right? So <laughs> when I'm thinking about making a turn that's shorter than the arc of the ski at the highest yep. performance. Yep. Meaning that if I just bang, if I put the ski on as much edge and pure carve, that's sort of the arc of the ski. So if I want to yep. add something to it, yep. then I think about turning the front of the ski, so the front half from my toe piece onwards. I yep. think about I think about pulling that. Up almost. <laughs> yeah, like the tip of the ski, pu you're pulling it up towards, yeah. Towards the knee and across, that'll bring the ski yeah, back around. Yeah, because when it's on an edge, that's that that would... Break it off the edge, you know. As a... uh, no, would no, no, if the ski's on an edge, yep. pulling the tip up would make a shorter radius. Right, so that would break it off the edge and start it, start that turning idea, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Carving, you know. Yep. So, um, what I, I guess, if I'm, you know, the, the other idea I had was maybe it's not a heel push. Sometimes it feels like that, but maybe because I, if I watch the ski, there's still a definite edge change. The ski is yep. definitely on a new edge before it starts turning. Yep. But as soon as I'm on the edge, then I'm starting this idea of pulling the foot. Faster through the arc or up. Yep. Yep. Up is the same as doing a boot arc and pulling it yep. faster through the arc, yep. right? Yep. If you pull the foot faster through the arc than the ski can travel, it breaks off the edge and turns, right? Yep. So the ski rolls on the edge, and then as the leg extends, you you, you time the extension with yep. the pulling of the pull foot forward to break yep. it off the arc until it's at the fall line, and then you lock it on the edge. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting because, you know, Tom Langtree talked to Richie Berger. Uh, you know, last season in Miyoko, and he said, "Tell me some something about short turns." And the whole concept was um, breaking down the turn so that you pure carve parts but not others. Yeah. And his his gist was that you're trying not to pure carve the first section. You're landing pure carved on the second section, and then you're breaking the ski off the edge through the end of the turn. So it's like carve pure carve 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 steer. Yeah. And that's and you know like I kind of put two and two together there to say well maybe that's the same thing, but I just sort of went through it. Then. Yeah, it kind of sounds like um, really at the end of the day, you're trying to be able to do everything that's possible in skiing in one turn. Yeah, in one turn. Like it's you know it's it's not saying that something's right. Or something's yeah. wrong. It's just like you do this, and this is the outcome. So yeah. here's I think here's some different outcomes. Point, and um, because I think there are benefits to being locked on an edge and benefits to not. Yep. And you know, like when you're locked on the edge, the benefit is you have absolute grip, and that's the only way that you can really be acted on by an external force to its yep. full potential. Yep. So there's a part of the turn that has to be that, but there are disadvantages to being locked on the edge as well because you have far less uh, amount of how much the scale turn. Um, you know, you, you know, once it's on the edge, you don't really have a way to dissipate the pressure at all until it's acted on you as much as it's going to. 
So I think being able to play around with it, you know. Yeah. Um, you can have parts of the turn that are locked on when they're needed and parts of the turn when they're not. It's a good thing, you know, and it takes a yeah. lot of skill. And, you know, when you get it right far out, it's rad, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because yep. you still get that real punch and zing, but you feel like you're more in control of it. Totally. The other thing is when you put the ski on the edge without setting a steering angle, I mean, the, the ski has that, but it's a very, it's like a local steering angle or whatever you yeah. we call that in Australia. But when you put the ski on the edge, you're going in one direction and you just edge the ski. Due to the shape of the ski, it'll start to turn, but it's a very small steering angle. So that's a very small amount of pressure that will build up until the ski bends more and more and more and more and you turn more and more, and then the pressure gradually comes on progressively. Now, we know all the benefits of that, but it's also a very boring way to build up. There's no sort of spike in pressure quickly. There's no yeah. sudden, there's no sudden like a trampoline where it hits and up you go again. You know? like, mm. So I think the idea of being able to have it at your fingertips when you need it instantly and 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 the most potential uh, of external pressure, this, this idea kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Hey, um, how is your uh, how is your back and everything going? Um, yeah, not great at the moment because I'm just at a desk 10, 11. I've started into the 11-hour days sometimes without yeah. really sitting on a Swiss wheel now, which definitely does engage yeah. more. But subconsciously, I've managed to figure out how to wedge my heels in so I don't use any muscle whatsoever. Like if you <laughs> between like the ball wedged between your heel and your bum. Yeah. You use any core. And I <laughs> didn't even know you could do this, but all of a sudden I realized that I wasn't feeling any workout, you know. I thought, yeah. that's odd. And then I realized that now I'm just naturally doing that. So. Yeah, your body's kind of hacked around it yeah, <laughs> to, like to be lazy. You're just like yeah. so good at doing that. <laughs> but I'm stretching every night, and but I am feeling like back pain when I'm not, and I'm not even skiing or doing anything yet. So that means it's not yeah. good. Yeah, uh, I'll start skiing on the seventh with our new staff training, so I'll know a bit more then. But I'm stretching a lot, and um, I've also found um, some real inflexibility and weakness. Uh, you know, with my left hip, um, you know how that side's always been the weaker side. I always mm -hmm. rotate a little bit on that side, and that's been the most aggravation in the hip flexor. Yep, on my left side. Um, well, what I found was I sat on the like I sat on the edge of a table like this and just did the exercise that Riley does in Project Kits. Yep. And what what was interesting, if I just sit there with my legs straight and I try to move my knees from one side to the other, oh sorry, my outside knee to yep. touch this one like that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. When I do it with my right leg, it just flops in, no worries, and go all the way and no issue. When yep. I do it with my left one, I can get to not even touching the other leg. Yeah. What I started to do when I really pushed it, I started to feel maybe I'll just stretch it by pushing it and just holding it like a stretch. Yeah. And the stretch came more through the glute, like the upper uh, hammies and glute. Yeah. So I, started, uh, I thought, okay, well, that's what that's the thing that's stopping the, you know, mm. makes sense. So yeah. That's where yeah. yeah. So then I started stretching that glute, and I'm so, I like significantly less flexible in my left glute. Than my than my right or anywhere else like that's the the weakest. That's link. kind of the yeah like that's where it all tightens up. So I've been really massively making sure, uh, and it's way off like it's so asymmetrical. Huh. You know, so I'm really hammering that at the moment. And and when I stretch, like I'll, if I stretch for a minute my left glute, I do that exercise again, like all these exercises. Yeah, like much the same. And Pretty, just yeah. Yeah. Right. 
So, and I think that's also why there's been such over. What, what did um, my physio say? I've got a hyperactive hip flexor. Well, it's because it's fighting so hard against against glute, a tight glute. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sweet. So you've found some good. You've d- done some self exploration to find out what's what's actually kind of yeah, holding you back um, there. The, the back was caused by the fact that I uh, rotate on that side and it, and the QL was working so hard to knock dot. Yeah. Flat. Yeah. So if that, yeah. if that gets better and I don't rotate on that side, then there'll be less strain on the back as well and hopefully. Yeah, good. Awesome. Um, so how would you, how, like, you, how would you rate this last season in Oz for you? You feel like you overall made some some progress, some some good changes, and even and I'm not just talking about your own skiing, but you know how you you're, you're definitely on a on a mission to teach and train more effectively. Do you feel like you achieved some of that mm-hmm. this season? Um, yeah. So from I'll put the ski start with the skiing because that's quick and easy. I, I uh, didn't ski for two months of the season because my back was too bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was no progress with skiing whatsoever. If, if anything, it went the other way because I just wasn't doing it. Yeah. Um, I still ran some courses with the injured back, just yep. sort of around and when coaching, and um, and so yeah, definitely um, made had some wins with how to communicate certain concepts. And it's interesting, the one we talked about before, that was one of the main ones. Yep. Big part of trying to you know get someone to break the into that next level of skiing, being able to adjust yeah. that. We've yeah. always known that, but how to actually do it. Yep. And then the thing I think I started to develop uh, within myself, which is something we all train and it's going to be like, a, yeah, that's obvious and you know all the words, but just where someone is on the, you know, and this is, how bad is this? I can't even remember the terminology we use from them. <laughs> um, what phase of learning a student's in? So that's the yeah. answer. Yeah, so, okay. Not necessarily adhering to what's in the manual or what's written about this, but being able to recognize when it's enough to just keep doing nothing more. Yeah. You know, like we try this and, you know, we're all as trainers and, and instructors so fixated on the end goal that we rush people, you know. It's like you see a, a win at this stage and you're like, okay, there's, you got that, you got that, we're winning. Yeah, okay, now go. we're this next bit to get to the end, the end form and that's – so just having the patience to even in a week-long level four course where somebody is – the end form is why they're paying the money because they want to pass level four. Being able to say this person is not capable of moving to the next step, which is five steps before the end form. We've just spent a whole week and I'm still not going to move on. And that means they're not going to go for this level four this year. And you know what? That's the best thing for them. Yep. You know what I mean? I think that was to say, okay, you had that win on Tuesday. So now on Wednesday, we're going to just, just – and even if you don't get it, at least you know what to do in the future and all that. And yeah, that's yeah. not right. I think you need that to know when it's the link Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, it's hard, hey, with courses because that's definitely the tendency of, yeah. you know, you and feel also, these people have paid for all this 100%. course content and everything and you've got to kind of deliver it. But 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 to be truthfully honest, you're going to, like you said, do the best by them by actually just sticking with what they really need to nail. Yeah, and that's a hard one because it's not something that's – it's not that we um, lack energy in it. It's the battling their own insecurity of being able to to not live up to their own and the, and the candidate's expectation of the end form, you know? Say that – just say that once again. It just broke up a bit. I think the trainer's insecurity – 
yep. and being able to not reach the end form, which is the, the objective of the trainer and the candidate uh, by a certain time. You know, and I, and as bad as this sounds, like this is sounds going to be said very poorly, what I'm about to say, um, I started to care less about people skiing well and cared more about where they are in their stage of learning because ultimately that will have a bigger impact. So yeah. at the end of the week, if people were no closer to necessarily the end form but were on the right track and where they were in that phase of learning for the task they were doing, that was like a major success or I was starting to realise I care less about that and more about that. And yep. So that was a, that was cool. Yeah, that was a cool thing. Was it? Did you find it was easy enough? For people to accept that, or did you find like did you find pe- people that are all that are actually pretty happy with it? Hundred percent, because the yeah. acceptance of the new thing that you're learning is always uh, completely uh, disconnect between the trainer and the student. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, and it's not until you go and do something brand new that you really experience that disconnect. Yeah. So what I mean by that is like a quick example I could give you would be well when I took up snowboarding for the first time. And mm-hmm. someone just put your arm there, which for us as a trainer knows how weak that sort of feedback is, just put your arm there because it's yeah. how much that can have. But for yeah. the learner, this is a whole new concept that has to be taken on and learnt through the learning phases properly. Yep. So they're absorbed in this notion of just moving your arm there. And and so their, um, so their acceptance, was the word you used, their acceptance of that being enough is times a billion. But as yeah. the, your, your train as the trainer, you're thinking, you know, is their acceptance enough? And they're worried about, are they just going to be bored with that? You know, I've yeah. also felt the same thing when I went and did the scuba, like the open world scuba diving course. Yeah. And I was just so quite all, and there's new information and processing that, and and I'm looking at the trainer, thinking, this is your like standard auto response day that you haven't even planned for. It's just like run of the mill. You're on autopilot. And I'm like totally absorbed in what you're saying. Yeah. So, like in the in in the course, is you know, do they accept that that yeah, hundred percent? Because they don't realize they don't they're not actually aware of it. And that's yeah. Back to the it's training. A, yeah. It's it's mostly the the issue comes from the trainer's insecurity of totally yeah, yeah. of not not being a level four trainer and producing level four candidates at the end of it. Yeah. Yep. And you know that's also different as well to everyone as that's obvious. But the difficulty comes as well. I mean, in that where I felt like I was having those wins, I had a group that were all reasonably similar in where they were on the timeline or where they were on their in their phase of learning. They were yep. different schools, but maybe a similar phase of learning. So that was kind of okay. You could move faster and slower, uh, and it works. But then I think the difficulty comes when you've got people in different phases of learning. Yeah. Not necessarily different skill or ability level, but different phases of learning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I uh, you've you've seen that I've been working towards a good like a gymnastics handstand. Yeah, yeah. So that goal started. Looks good. What's that? It looks good. They're going well. Yeah, yeah, it's going well. Well, I started in March with the goal of being able to do it pretty well by by the time Archie was born, which was. Uh, three weeks ago yep. and so I got that so it was good that I gave myself like I guess I'm referencing referencing this to skiing because it was a pretty new skill set I had to learn especially yep. balancing on your hands totally different to your feet um, what's that? 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Close, Shane. Um, but it was pretty cool because I hired a coach or a trainer to help me, which was totally necessary. Yeah. And yeah, just picked away at those areas, the the skills in the handstand that I sucked at. Yeah. And just spent hours and hours every week just doing boring drills, trying to feel you know, where my pelvis was when I was upside down on my hands relative yeah. to all these other bits. And yeah, it just it took so long. And if someone had gone, right, here's a week to learn a handstand, I reckon I wouldn't be as good a form as I am now. Whereas this guy was like, here's three areas you're really bad at. Here's a couple of drills for those yeah. areas. Go away and yeah. So I just had him once every like month and that was it. And just work so that out myself. Definitely would have a good understanding whether he's cognizant of it or not of the phase of learning. Say that again. Did... There's someone that whether he's cognizant of it or not has yep. a good understanding of the phases of learning. Yep. Or future proofing his business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's. I think it was the former. I think it was the former because yeah, it was sort of like we did a bit of a trade, so he wasn't getting that much out of it. Yeah. I was. Yeah. I was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So it sounds like not, um, I guess not being able to focus on your own skiing really helped you channel that energy and focus into the training, training of others side, which is uh, really nice to hear. You know, the, uh, when I was injured, because one of the times it happened was actually on course the first time. So I had to do the next three days or four days of the course without being able to turn. Like one day I couldn't turn. Yep. So I, and I came to the course and I said to Andy, look, you know, I can't turn, but I'm really happy to do this. And you coach all the time where you don't actually ski, that's fine. I can do this as long as the guests are happy, with, like as long as the candidates are happy, you know. And, and so I spoke to the candidates on the first on that day and I said, look, I can't ski, um, but are you okay with and they were all like, you know what, you, you know, you're, you're coaching, that's fine, no worries. Yeah, so as soon as, it, you know, as soon as we went out there, the, like this whole focus of having to perform well in front of them and do the best turns was out the window. Yeah. So then what you said, like you fully then, it's just completely as it should be about them. Unless yeah. it's you trying to do the best turns in front of them to show them or to impress them or anything like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Super interesting, yeah. So yeah. really good, I guess, realisation. Yeah, and that really worked for the visual learners too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Hey, um, so you, you, when it, when are you finishing? When are all these new videos coming out? Um, well, I'm working on them a lot at the moment. We're um, going to start bringing them out on the 9th of December. So we've talked. You know, we're in a bit of a tricky situation. So there's a backstory to this. Um, so I'm not going to answer the question straight away. Okay. Um, we're in a tricky situation because we have a huge following with Projected. We have people that are talking about it. Um, you know, you look at the any of the free content and the amount of views, and we're, we have such a massive following, but it doesn't relate to the sales. So you know, we've sold like our biggest selling video has got a thousand sales, and the trailers had eighty thousand views or something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So there's a few things going on there. We're trying to figure it out because. Riley and I are at a point now where, you know, the with those sort of numbers with, uh, and, and also the cost involved to make these, you know, Riley and I are carrying this in a big way financial side. 
So we need to figure out a way that the videos can sustain themselves financially. Otherwise, we may not be able to continue filming. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, so uh, we're looking at doing these episodes, which are shorter. They're ten-minute episodes. Um, something that you could watch on a chairlift. Uh, let's be honest, no one really wants to sit and watch one person talk about skiing for an hour and a half. So yep. 10 minutes is, I think, more sort of digestible. Yep. Um, and then also the price point, you know, bringing it down to like 2 or $3 uh, is is another thing. That, so we're kind of, uh, those two things will make it more attractive, but also breaking into uh, informational content that's going to affect everyone. So not just a, a really elite skier, but... You know, like my mum, who's a really good blue skier, skis blues runs, she gets a yeah. lot out of those videos too. Yeah. Um, as a, and also then somebody who's a trainer might will get something out of it as well. So getting a bigger market, I think, is a good one. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, there's obviously the, the problem we have with people that are a group of five mates buying one video and all watching it together. And it's yeah. not necessarily that they're sharing it illegally. Like I would probably do it the same way, you know, but... Um, definitely not getting the sales that, are, that represent how many people are seeing it. Yeah. So yeah. we're thinking about maybe doing it more on a rental basis where you rent, you pay 2 or $3 to rent it for 24 or 48 hours and yeah. then we have a subscription as well where you pay like 10 bucks a month and get access to everything that's in the series while you're, at, while you're paying the $10 yeah. a month. Um, you know, obviously we're going to lose a little bit come March when all of them are coming up because you can pay 10 bucks, watch them all. Yep. You know, and then and then cancel your membership, but it also, you know, potentially we want people to sign up in December, an episode comes out a week, they pay their subscription, and they keep it going and get a new episode each week, and then they have it through the summer, they pay their subscription and can keep, you know, have access to that, those videos and resources. So. Yeah. Um, but it's exciting, we've got some new skiers as well, we've got uh, Takao Mariyama, who's the Japanese national champion uh, at the technical competitions, and an yep. absolute, probably... When I skied with him, that was the first time I've skied with him. So second time uh, when we're filming, and he is on the same level as Richie Richie Berger, yeah. who you know. Yeah, I got I got to I got to ski with him at the NZ Tech Champs. Yeah, yeah. unbelievable skier. Yeah. yeah, he's very good, very 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 impressive. Yeah. Um, so him, he's been one, and I'm actually editing him at the moment. Uh, and then I've got an, uh, we've got one coming out with Iyama Keske, who's the second place. Uh, holder of the national Japanese technical championships. So not to, uh, not to, not to give it all all away, but what could people get from these two guys' tips? These two guys are a little bit different. So the, all of the other episodes are very they're, they're called how to ski episodes. Yeah. These two ones are special editions with more uh, visuals, their background, what the technical competitions are about, what they're doing in their training. There's no exercises in it. Yep. Um, they're, they're a little bit longer. Like t right now, the one I'm editing with Tack is more around the 17 to 20 minute mark. Uh, and maybe the intermediate ski is not going to get a whole lot out of it at all. But I tell you, anyone like you, you, you or, or me will absolutely froth on on this episode. Cool. With SK, so, yeah. Cool. And then, yeah. so then in the more the how to ones, like give us give us one thing that maybe one of the skiers is going to talk to sure. the public about. I can tell you all of them, and there's teasers where you can get a bit of a feel for each episode as well. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, like I think the first one's going to be Jonathan Ballou talking about how to get into powder. Um, so it's a progression uh, from starting out stationary on the groomed and the, uh, activating the right muscles to then make the right movements in powder uh, and help break through the powder and then be able to turn. So nice. this is stuff that whether you're a good skier or not. You know, that's, yeah, that's really good. Um, I'm I'm doing one on early edging, so 
how to go from one set of edges to the other without any sort of twisting or anything like that so that you have the ability to edge the ski as the first movement. Again, that's relevant to somebody doing a parallel turn to somebody who's pure carving, making sure that the right joints are moving to do that. Um, Nadine Grunenfelder is doing an episode on uh, how to improve your racing but not in gates. So for somebody who you know is a recreational racer, maybe a club racer, or somebody who's going for a Euro test, you know that doesn't have access to gates all the time, can still improve their gate scheme. Yeah. Uh, John Arson is talking exactly about what we talked about earlier of relationship with the center of mass and the base of support. Yeah. How to that both ways. Um, JF's talking about how to be, you know, more resistance in skiing through the outside leg. Um, you know, so there's a bunch of different ones, and it is applicable. Cool levels of skiing so yeah nice nice that's yeah. good 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 to hear that uh you and riley are both back in the videos again yeah it's exciting and it was it made it a little bit more tricky to shoot the, the films um you know because you're in it and then you know james wilkins and robert benjamin they're our two other videographers i mean they were working hard because they were filming everything um you know and it was they were doing a great job and we couldn't have done yeah. it without so, and then it yeah, meant nice. they have to be skiing while, while there were two cameras on, um, which was good. Yeah, nice. Cool. They sound good. They sound yeah. good. Yeah. Um, nice, man. Well, I think that's probably a good amount of ski talk for us yeah. now and a good, good little catch-up. Yeah, that was um, good. Yeah, that was good. Good to do it in a bit more of a, a less formal environment. Yeah. So... Uh, so I'll do. Now, what were you going to say? I think we got pretty techy in there. I think it'll be interesting to see how many people. Do you have stats to see how many people actually listen till the end? I don't have stats on how. Uh, yeah, if they listen to the end, yeah, yeah. Like obvious dropout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It could be that they they start this episode and stop after a few minutes. <laughs> um, hopefully not. Hopefully not. I think I think people will find it interesting. Um, I yeah. certainly did. It was good. I always enjoy our chats. Yeah, me I always too. find I always find little gems in there of just the way uh, you explain and think about things um, because I think it's a little bit different to how everyone else comprehends stuff. You you have a good way of viewing something from many different angles, which I think helps. That's why coming back to your you know improvement in how you're training people. I think that's why you get really good results there because you are a good trainer in terms of getting the message across in 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 different ways so oh, thank um, you. I appreciate that that's nice thing to say yeah no no definitely mean it it also um you know i find i have conversations about skiing with a lot of people as we all do um but you're the right person for this sort of thing because you know how to ask the right question as well and that's pretty important i think to get yeah well, otherwise you can't get it out It'll just be in your brain. No yeah. one else will get to to yeah. suck it out. It'll just be floating around, and you'll just keep getting better than better than everyone. And oh yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when so so you've got this winner, Japan. You'll do the tech comps again. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And then you'll go to Europe and do some more filming with projected. Uh, might, might even go to the states. Oh, the states. Cool. Go to Mammoth. Is actually what we're talking about with Jonathan Blue. Ah, nice. There's a few few benefits to that. Um, also, Aspen Skiing Company just purchased Mammoth, and yep. Jonathan quite 
far up in that in that company running the Aspen Mountains. So that's true. Yeah, very cool. There, um, but also you know there's all, the the opportunity, and I don't know if you're putting this out to the podcast or not, but the, you know we're always talking about doing projected camps. It's something yep. we've been looking for for a while now, where you can come for five days, train maybe a different day with a different athlete. So, yep. On the sixth day, maybe even do filming with the athletes and yep. get a little. Yeah. Um, the following we have people jumping at it, um, but we've just got to get the right systems in place, the right insurances, obviously the right uh, approval to be operating. Um, yeah. But possibly that might be uh, something that could something come to look for in May in in, in America. So we'll oh, see. cool! So it might even be yeah, might even be possible in in May two thousand eighteen for people to, to go to a projected camp, possibly. Yeah, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but uh, I think in the next year or two there will be. The option of, or the possibility to attempt projected yeah, somewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can I say that people heard it here first? Sure. <laughs> Do, have they heard it here first, or have you, heard, you told other yeah, people that? Well, he hasn't even heard that that part yet. <laughs> no, of course, yes. He He's actually the main driver of it. He really wants to get the camps happening. So, yeah. And I've actually I've been the one slowing it down because I, you know, I you want to just make sure all the boxes are ticked and. Yeah, so, and, you know, that's, yeah. once that's figured out, then it's all good. You know? Yeah, nice. Yeah, of course, awesome. Riley. Yeah, yeah, good. Oh, man, awesome. Well, that, again, great conversation. Thanks yeah. very much for uh, for your time, and I hope people get something out of this episode. All right, we'll say goodbye. Okay, bye. Some of you may already know that I've been advising Carve and working with the team for some time now. And this year, the team has come up with probably some of the most exciting developments to date. They've been working on representing the most fun parts of skiing in their system. They've developed three brand new metrics, progressive edging, early weight transfer, and one that measures the G-force in a turn. And that one, I have to say, I got to try it out this winter in Australia, and that is really fun. This new addition is going to be incredible for anyone who's looking to really push their skiing up a notch. Now, what's even more interesting for this year is the system now detects what terrain you're on and pulls that into your Ski IQ score. This is a huge change and a great upgrade because sometimes it would only really score well if you were skiing on perfectly groomed snow. Now it's going to accommodate and adjust whether you're skiing in steeper slopes, more chopped up snow, or firmer snow. So this is a very big change that I think is massive kudos to the team to keep pushing and progressing the app even further. If you're the kind of skier that is looking for a tool to help push your technique that little bit further, then you should definitely check out what Carve can do. Use the code GELLY15, that's G-E-L-L-I-E-1-5, to get 15% off for the next two weeks.